Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica, and I'm your host. Today is September 12th, 2011. Today, my guest was supposed to be Robert Whitaker, but we haven't connected, and I don't see him in the queue. So uh, I'm going to see what's going to happen here. Um, we we're going to discuss the anatomy of an epidemic. Um, his new book and. It 
we'll, we'll, we'll have, maybe we'll get him on another time. Um, I see that somebody has logged in the queue. Hey there, uh, welcome to Block Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. It's Monica here, and um, I'm, I guess he. Um, I don't know what happened with him not coming on, but uh, he wrote quite a few books um, that I hope we'll get him back on another time. So uh, the anatomy of an epidemic um, was to, you know, I guess talk about what was going on with psych drugs. And uh, he, oh, maybe, maybe this is him right now. Hold on. Hi, welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, hi, Monica. This is me. <laughs> Sorry. I'm hey. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. Did you remember? Because I know usually I speak to someone a few days before. I did but I, remember, but actually I thought you were calling me, and then I missed your call about 10 minutes ago. So When you didn't call at 3 o'clock, I said I better check my messages. <laughs> I'm so glad. But I'm here. <laughs> Yay, you're here. Good. So um, let's talk about your new book or any of your books. I'm really excited just to have you on. Um, That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. So, Anatomy of an Epidemic, what brought you to writing this book? Well, that book really was, in some ways, a follow-up to um, my first book on uh, the topic of psychiatry and the treatment of the, quote, mentally ill in this country. Mm -hmm. And that first book, Mad in America, looked at, you know, how well our drug-based paradigm of care is working for those diagnosed with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. And really, (coughs) excuse me. The answer there is not well. Mm-hmm. I've got this horrible cough. Sorry about that. Okay. And then uh, people kept asking me, well, how about uh, bipolar? And where are all the bipolar patients coming from? And how about depression? And how about the kids? Mm-hmm. So really, anatomy of an epidemic was meant to look at that question. We, you know, we've really embraced this this, this drug-based paradigm of care. Right. Uh, we're medicating more people than ever. And just to look at, is it working for us? And is it working for us as a society? Is it working for for individuals? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that 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 was the purpose of it. Right. Um, and I'm new to knowing about you. I I found you on you know Kenneth An- An- Anderson's show, and mm-hmm. um, was really impressed. So I was wondering if you could share with some of our listeners just some of the statistics that you uh, shared on his show about what people were being diagnosed. You know, is it 20 years ago what you said, and how many people. <coughs> Sure. I mean, one of the things that, you know, you discover in this that is really quite amazing is that if you go back 30, 40 years ago before this, you know, drug explosion, uh, mental disorders, and this really isn't including, um, you know, psychotic disorders, generally ran sort of a a remitting episodic course. So maybe uh, someone would have a bout of depression and then it would go away. They'd be fine for an extended period of time, and maybe they'd have a second episode, maybe they would not. Um, Psychosis regularly remitted for most people. Same with mania. Uh, Bipolar disorder was a rare disorder. It was about 1 in 5,000 people. And so where are we at today? Well, all these disorders are now said to be chronic uh, recurring. You know, people are chronically ill. They're no longer episodically ill. They're much more symptomatic than they used to be. Um, employment rates are much worse than they used to be. Um, you see a lot of physical problems that people didn't used to have. Uh, you know, the, the quote, the seriously, seriously mentally ill are now dying 25 years earlier than normal. So you really see this deterioration in outcomes over the course of the past 30, 40 years uh, in long-term outcomes. 
which right. is quite surprising. And then the other thing that you do see, you really have to ask is, where are all the bipolar patients coming from? Because, uh-huh. like I said, bipolar prevalence used to be about 1 in 5,000, and now we're 1 in 50. Some say we're really more like 1 in, one in 25. Oh, that's so ridiculous. So the chronic thing, who decided that? Like when you said it was episodic now, and, you know, who? what kind of study or... Who's saying I mean, that it was it's all episodic and for the rest of your life you have to take these drugs? Well, this is really interesting. So if you if you do epidemiological studies 30, 40 years ago, and, and this would be, they'd be following hospitalized cohorts, okay? So these were people ill enough that they ended up in a, at a mental hospital or right. a psychiatric ward, and then they would follow them for 50 years, okay? And they would isolate, let's say, look at first episode patients hospitalized for a first episode of depression, and then... And let's say you have 300 patients you follow for 15 years. And what typically they'd find is at least half. Well, first of all, they would find that that first bout of depression would regularly lift for most patients just with time. Oh. And some patients it would re- re- remit in one month, some two months, some five months. some. But by eight months, ten months, about 85% were discharged. And then you'd find at least uh, around half in the next 15 years would never again be rehospitalized, so they would at least never suffer about serious enough that that, that caused rehospitalization. Right. Another uh, 30% or so might have a second bout or a third bout, but it was only a small percentage, 10 15%, that really became chronically depressed. Yeah. And then what you see happens is this. In the modern era, as let's say with depressions, they start looking at epidemiological studies they notice that, and this now is in the medicated era, right, where you, right. the person is being put on the drug, they notice that actually people now are much more, they, they have many more relapses. They don't have m- nearly as much time between episodes where they're what is called euthymic, an absence of symptoms. Huh. And this became so pronounced in 1985, this change mm-hmm. in long-term outcomes, that the National Institute of Mental Health actually convened a panel on this, a panel on mood disorders, and really, at this moment, they had one or two choices to make. They could either say, listen, uh, medicated depression is running a more chronic course because of the medication, or in order to save the medications, they had to say that those old studies must have been flawed, and they they chose the latter one. And they said, we used to think depression was episodic. Now we know it's really a chronic disorder. Mm-hmm. But they're not, you know, there's a big elephant in the room. It used to be right. unmedicated depression. Now we're talking about medicated depression. And anyway, mm-hmm. so then the next question is, well, what's the course, the long-term course of unmedicated depression today? And you find it's pretty much what it used to be. So the chronicity is seen, and in every study I can find that compares long-term outcomes for unmedicated, say, depressed patients and medicated depressed patients today, the mm-hmm. unmedicated patients every time have better long-term outcomes. Hmm. Um. I'm really curious. This is a theory of mine because I was watching some of these films about what they're doing to our farm animals and our food. And um, I was really disturbed by the footage that was removed from Food, Inc., which they didn't leave in, and they showed the pigs, you know, and they showed what they were doing to them and how they're actually being kept in crates their whole lives, Um and then I, you know, signed up to get these other films from Mercy for Animals and all of our farm animals. And then began to find out that all the chickens um, were also never seeing the light of day. These are the chicks. Um, never mind, the, like, the hormones. Forget, like, just the hormones. But 
Let's not forget the antibiotics and all that stuff. Yeah, go ahead. All the antibiotics. And then I found out about the dairy industry. So all of us kids drinking milk, um, that, and then you see what happens. They're ripping the calves away from the mothers. And even if it's, so, you know, how far organic, does it have to say it's sustainably farmed? If Because I've seen this increase, too. So I've been... Um, Someone who's been around people, you know, I don't even want to use the word recovery anymore because I can't stand it, but I've been abstinent from alcohol for over 36 years and watched people, you know, that say came into the AA and the NA rooms in the 70s, right? Right. And very few people were being diagnosed with depression or any sort of mental illness then. Right. And there wasn't much, and you can probably help me here, which, what there was back then, which was, um, do you remember the one drug if somebody was kind of a, Manic or something. What did they give people back in the mid-70s? For mania was like lithium or something. Yes, right, lithium. Okay, because I have right. a family member who was, my sister actually was having problems. and um, But our food, and that was not going on with our animals yet. You know what I mean? That wasn't right. the, the big chicken boom. And So have you you're, have you thought about that? Or what's your opinion about the food and uh, our environment affecting? Right, mental health. Right, if all of our animals are depressed, and they got to be, they look insane. They actually don't. Well, they may depressed. be traumatized, actually. I mean, they are traumatized. Depressed. Right, and we are um, ingesting. Mm, yeah, listen, that's curious. the one helping. Um, you know, I just read a book called The Moral Lives of Animals. Animals are such incredible, uh, mm. you know, feeling creatures. And, uh, yeah. Um, I, you know, I have thought about this. I don't, and I don't think we know enough to, to you know, to sort of put a whole story together. Yeah, and, no I, and I think there are many things... With yeah, but let me just... So basically what I'm saying is, um, you know, I'm I, I'm quite clear... It's quite clear that human beings, you know, are mind-body machines, right? And what right. we eat affects uh, mood, affects physical health, affects our hormonal level. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. there is this old story about what... You know what goes in does affect who you be, who you are, so to speak, and, and mm-hmm. your mind state, etc. Uh, it's hard to imagine that uh, eating uh, meat that is, you know, where you have antibiotics being fed left and right, and, and you know, extraordinarily stressed out animals, unhealthy animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I can't imagine that if you did an analysis, say, of chicken meat from a chicken that was running around, a, a, you know, a tree. <laughs> In right, a barnyard, eating worms compared to a chicken that is in a wire mesh, uh, you know, its life crowded unbelievably. So, you know, and so um, I think this is a real thing. I mean, I think this is a profound question is what sort of, what has happened to our food supply? I mean, it's just not, you, you have that question with meat, uh, you know, even the fruits and vegetables sometimes aren't nearly filled with micronutrients that they used to be. Um uh, so it's 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 a it's a valid question, and uh, you know if you're drinking soda and crap in the morning, uh, and you're 16, God knows what that does to you. So I, th- I think diet treatment of animals um, all fits into a question of whether you're building a healthy society. And um, I, I I think if you're treating animals that way and eating those animals, and I'm I'm I eat animals, okay? I mean I, I eat meat. Yeah, so do I. I'm not a vegetarian either. Yeah. I'm not yeah, but uh, when I read about it, I'm appalled, and, and because of that, I am trying to eat less meat. Yeah, I mean, just I'm, first of all, it's not a good way to treat the animals, but I can't imagine the meat's so healthy either. 
Right. I just won't eat this stuff if I know it's coming from, you know, those places where they're just horrifically treated anymore. So I eat it, but I just and, – and actually the world is changing in California, and I just traveled – uh, if San Francisco um, about sustainability and all that, and it's it's on menus now. So um, there's a lot of us that are you know aware of it at least in California. So I'm grateful for that. But um, I would love for you to talk about is there any anything that's really on your mind now about your books and about what's going on in our culture uh, about this with the medication the medicating. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, so I've been speaking like crazy in the past year, basically. I mean, I've just been on the speaking to groups in this country, other countries. I just came back from New Zealand, and wherever I go, wherever you are in a society that has embraced this form of care, where you're using drugs left and right, and you're medicating kids, mm-hmm. there's this real confusion. Like, what the hell's going on? Because every society that's done it is suddenly seeing more bipolar patients, more more disability due to affective disorders more trouble in their kids, et cetera. Right. But there's this real searching out there. And I think for me, the, I mean, the, the whole story has so many profound elements, but the most profound to me is the medicating of kids. Uh. And there's two uh. reasons for that. One, that does not happen any way within a consensual environment. In other words, if I'm 22 and I feel depressed, I can decide to take an antidepressant. And I may not really get all the honest information, but at least I have that self-agency to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, no no kid, no six-year-old or eight-year-old or four-year-old is saying, you know, I'd really like to take an atypical antipsychotic or, I, you know, maybe uh, Ritalin would be good for me or an antidepressant. All that is being done uh, through parental and, uh, you know, medical and teacher initiative. Wow. So that is a profound thing. That's a four-year-old or a six-year-old? Oh, yeah, four-year-olds are being put on drugs all the time now, uh, and even antipsychotics. And if you're a foster care kid, you're getting hammered. Um, oh. It's in, in, in some colleges now, not in some the college. I, I recently gave a talk to a group of college counselors in the Northeast, and they are now saying 30% of their kids coming to college campuses are on psych drugs, 30%. Which shows oh that we're pathologizing kids left and right. And so in terms of we are we have changed what it means to grow up. That's a new philosophy. Um, I will tell you everything I can. F- those drugs do modify the brain. So in other words, you give a kid or anybody that drug, and then the, the brain has to change uh, in order to compensate for the presence of the drug. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even clear if once you come off, if the brain really readjusts back to, quote, renormalizes. Really. Anyway, and and all the long-term data I can find, what is what what does that data tell us? Well, it tells us that actually you see increased emotional distress on yeah. the drug. Uh-huh. You see physical problems. You see cognitive problems. So uh, everything I can find by looking at the scientific literature is a story of extraordinary harm done. And I just don't know. There are so many profound moral questions swirling in our society today. And, you know, treatment of animals is certainly one. And our food supply and you know, global climate change. Um, they're all so profound. This one, in some ways, I think is, well, it's certainly up there as extraordinarily profound because we're really changing the way kids grow up. And if 
the science is right, we are really diminishing a lot of lives. These kids are not going to live the full lives they would have otherwise had. Well, it also makes people not fighters, like not, you know, how can we have a culture like, you know, if this was going on, we would have never had the civil rights movement. Boy, you know, now you're getting into a political aspect of this that is so uh, key. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, marijuana. Like, I used to think they wanted everybody on pot back in the 60s. You know, I was young. I was born in 57. So right. if everybody was like, la, la, on marijuana, they're not going to go and fight the fight. But there were people smoking marijuana, and they were drinking wine, you know. Right. And they were dropping LSD, and there were people that weren't doing that. But they were out there in the streets with passion, with feeling. They were empowered. They weren't like a, excuse me, but, you know, like a bunch of, you know, gaga, oh, I'm powerless, so, I, you know, I can't, oh, I shouldn't fight anything or anyone kind of la-la culture. Right. And now, if everybody gets on this, you know, and we have 30% of our college kids, which those were the kids that were out in the streets, and saying, right. we've had enough of this. We don't want to fight a war that means nothing. Right. right? And so if yeah, you want no have well, passion, listen. if they can't cry, if they can't get mad... Then how are they going to fight against what's wrong going on in our world? Well, actually, you know, psychiatry in essence has pathologized rebelling against the authority. I mean, it's a, it's it's a diagnosis now. It's called oppositional conduct disorder. So if oh, you God. if you're a pain in the ass to 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 teachers or a challenging authority, that really is a diagnosis now. So uh, you know, you're the you're the different kid in grade school or high school and you think you know you think adults are sort of crazy which is often not a bad perspective um anyway that's pathologized you can you know you'll get you'll get hit with ritalin and you'll get hit th- with things that are supposed to diminish your emotional engagement i mean one of the things that happens with kids on ritalin they become uh you know less socially interactive and they move around less so you know, you have to do think a lot of this in a cultural context. And um, if you, if you say that rebelling against authority is a psychiatric uh, disease, and you know they say all oh, this is brain diseases, you know you basically have a brave new world where you're not allowed to, um, in any way, wow. protest against the insanities of of the, you know, the ruling elite. And you can see this most clearly with the treatment of foster children. So who are foster children? Well, you know, foster children are have every reason to be angry. Right. Um, first of all, they got born into a family that was dysfunctional, and then often they're put into a system that's dysfunctional. And what does that system do today? Well, it hammers them with drugs. I mean, it's four-year-olds get in the foster care system, sometimes get put on antipsychotics. By the time yeah. they're teenagers, it's something around two-thirds of foster care children are on antipsychotics now. <sighs> Which oh. I, I'm talking about foster care children, right? So right, right, right. Teenagers in foster care are on antipsychotics. Often they're on two, three, four drugs. And if you look at what that combination does, a it makes them often makes them obese. Um, it makes them move around less. It will rob them of sexual interest, desire, capacity. Um, as you said, it will numb them out. Often they'll spend their days sleeping late. Well. Mm-hmm. Think about that. I mean, uh, why is that being done? It's not being done for the benefit of those foster care kids. It's being done so, you know, they're easier to manage, they're less aggressive, et cetera. I, I mean, that is that's that's depressing. Clearly, it's clearly political. It's clearly a social control. Uh, Let's talk about the money that they're making. So you have figures with Pfizer. Who makes them, Pfizer and Roche? And, uh, yeah, it's Pfizer, Eli Lilly. Sure. 
Do you know what the biggest, uh, the class of drugs that is now the biggest revenue-producing class of drugs in the United States, or at least it was two years ago, and we're talking about uh, including like antihypertensives or whatever drugs they might be, the biggest revenue-producing class of drugs in America two years ago were, were antipsychotics. Mm. Think about that. Antipsychotics. Wow. And, and really, you know, so often they're just being used for behavioral control, nursing homes, uh, foster care kids, stuff like that. Right. Yeah, they put it on, I gave my dad stuff, and he was, like, dying. He was, like, on hospice. And I said, like, take him off it. Why? And they didn't want to take him off it because he would be yelling, you know, right. down the hallway. And uh, they didn't want to listen to him yell. But I think that this is really a problem. This is really, um, it's so, it's disturbing that this is, you know, of course they would want people to think that they need to keep on it the rest of their life, just like, you know, if you go to AA, you need to go there the rest of your life. And actually, no one ever really said that. Like, there's nowhere in that their books that say you need right. to be coming to these meetings. I had Dee Dee Stout on, you know, last week, and she was, you know, uh, gotten very into training on harm reduction and stuff and a different point of view, and she was saying that. And, you know, I thought, when did that go into that? You know, into twelve stepping that people, you know, it's probably the Pacific Group or somebody like that. Or well, you know, there's even a document that surfaced when I that I came upon in which um, the doctor, the psychiatrist who's been so good, big at that sort of promoting the idea of juvenile bipolar disorder. His name is Joseph Biederman at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. Yeah, he received something like one point three million dollars from the maker of an antipsychotic called um, Risperdal. And in the documents, he promised Jansen, the maker, he said, listen, first of all, I'll, I'll produce information or data showing that your drug works in kids. Wow. And, and, and that's number one. And number two, I'll help promote the idea and validate the idea that, you know, bipolar disorder can occur like in three-year-olds and four-year-olds. And you need to Oh, my God. And then he said is, and I will show that it's a chronic disorder and the kids need to be on Risperdal the rest of their life. So there was a there was a real sense in those documents. He's making a promise to um, Jansen. I will give you uh, patience for life. So you were asking, you know, this whole chronicity and yeah. all that story. Well, um, from a commercial point of view, if you can convert that four-year-old to a lifelong user, now they won't live that long. They're only lived probably to about thirty-five or forty. They're not gonna. If you're put on an antipsychotic at your five, you're not gonna live to sixty. Um, but nevertheless, from a commercial really, point of view, well, tell me why. I mean, Bob, what what happens if someone is put on it and when they're four or five? Oh, things start going haywire. There's a lot of metabolic problems. Uh, mm -hmm. They'll get they might get elevated blood sugar levels. They may get um, elevated cholesterol levels. They maybe get obese. There's all sorts of metabolic problems. Um, Diabetes, depending on which atypical drug, um, that's one. Two, um, you do start to see some dysfunction, like in the dopaminergic pathways, uh, mm -hmm. that can lead to like um, uh, signs of tardive dyskinesia. Tardive dyskinesia is a movement disorder where uh, people start having involuntary tics, or their their, their tongue might be going, uh, you know, in and out all the time. And yeah, I know somebody whose kid got put on stuff and uh, as a teenager and uh, and got TD. It's, yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. And I tried to to tell her that 
first of all, the, this generation of, like, say, my kids, so I have a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old, and I know a lot of sober parents, right, who I, I know from when I was in AA, that these kids are not falling for, they're not going to drink the Kool-Aid of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're not going to say, oh, I'm powerless. They're not going to buy it. So SMART has to be promoted, and are these other modalities that are more empowering need some, free, you know, free PR, Right. But these kids aren't, and so our kid was and didn't like AA. He hated AA, and I said, well, did you know there's other things out there? And he started telling me what was going on with her son, and and I know this kid since he was born. And I was just like, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. They're just, they're, they're guinea pigs. Guinea well, they're pigs, guinea so, pigs, so in yes. terms of why, yeah, they are guinea pigs. In terms of why they're going to die is anyway, you see a decline in physical health. With the antipsychotics, metabolic factors, weight problems, cardiovascular problems, and um, this is why, you know, the seriously mentally ill who are on these cocktails now die in their 40s and 50s. Okay, with great regularity, they died 25 years earlier than normal. But this is in people who are put on these atypicals and drugs maybe in their early 20s. So you know, 20, 25 years later, they're dying. Well, how about the five-year-old? And all the evidence is that the child has much more severe side effects than the adult. So um, I don't know how long they're going to live, but it's a guinea-pig experiment. But I'm, I'm quite sure they're not going to live to be 60 if they stay on the drugs. So um, I saw um, a Frontline did an episode or, you know, they did a special on this uh, right. a couple of years ago that I was horrified. Is anyone doing a full-length documentary about this, because to me it seems like it would really be right. Really, Can do you I know anybody? Because that? you're really into this. Is anyone doing a documentary on it? Is it they are. I mean, we'll go back to that frontline documentary real quickly. Because actually, I was interviewed for that, and then I got cut out. But look at the. Go back and look at that. And the kid they follow, he's they follow some kid who gets diagnosed early with ADHD, and by the end, God knows what he's on. Yeah. He's he's got tardive dyskinesia. The kid in the end is yes. walking down down the I hallway know. and his head's jerking. Why parents do that to him? And then the doctors are like, well, it's just a tick. It's not just a tick. It means his basal ganglia has become dysfunctional. Um, listen, yeah, there are some documentary filmmakers who are like actually four or five in response to anatomy of an epidemic want to make a movie and they're working mm-hmm. on it. The problem mm-hmm. is funding. So it's real hard to get funding. Cause, you well, know, I, you know, I'm making one. I'm making okay. one um, about really exposing criminal behavior going on in 12-step meetings and um, criminal behavior and, you know, there's been murders, there's been rapes, and then the, the terrible sexual harassment that's been going on for years and been unchecked. Within and the I'm, AA uh, meetings. Yeah, in AA and NA, right? And okay. um, the other half will be about enlightening the world that there's other things. And I've interviewed Tom Horvath from SMART, and I'm going to interview somebody from Women for Sobriety. I've interviewed uh, Stanton Peel. And, uh-huh. you know, I, I I didn't, I mean, I know that I need to interview other people. I guess we could even interview you. Where? What city are you at in? I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's right across from Boston. Okay. Well, I'm going to come there for um, a different reason. I'm going to go to Nutley, New Jersey, because there's a bunch of, you know, people, normal neighbors that are up in arms about what's going on in their neighborhood with the AA and NA meetings. And then there was a, a murder in Maine, so I'm going to go. But maybe, uh, you know, I could come there because this... Yeah, sure. This is really upsetting to me. And I'll tell you what, Lifetime Channel was the first channel 
that I used to love to watch, and there was an ad that came on, and my boys were, God, it must have been like 10 years ago or 8 years ago, about a drug to go to sleep like or for depression. And my, my sons were sitting in the room with me, and they were little then, so like 6 and 10 years old, and I said, you've got to be kidding me. Now, see, my father worked for Pfizer and Hoffman LaRoche in the 60s, and he became a pharmaceutical drug addict and right. almost alcohol as well. So I lived with what that did. And anyway, I said, I'm never watching this channel again. And then it started to creep. And I think one of the goals, one of the laws that I would like to see made would be just like I would rather see like a wine ad again. Um, that you can never have an ad for a, a psych drug ever again. I want to make that the law. That has that should be made illegal that they're doing. Uh, I, that well, is, that would be a big, nice step forward because those ads. I mean, you know, yeah. Anyway, that'd be a nice step forward. I mean, it's you know, it's like drug dealers advertising on TV yeah. in a certain sense. Oh, please. Yeah, and, and you get these figures out here, you know, uh, of what you're saying. A thirty percent of a college student. You know, is are on these drugs, and um, it's just really, really sad. I mean, I just uh, wow. Yeah, I it's um, means we're raising a group of uh, young people who are are being taught to uh, think of themselves as not quite right, not quite capable of really managing their emotions, and not really going through those ups and downs. And as you know, as we all know, growing up's not easy, but. Uh, going through those ups and downs and suffering slings and arrows is part of what helps us grow up. And, I, and as feeling, a, to me, feeling. that's AA getting into our society as a culture um, because AA tells you that you're broken, that you are like a, you know, a man who's lost their legs, they never grow new ones, which is right out of the literature, and that you are, you know, you are, there's something wrong with you, that you are bodily and mentally different from your fellows. Those people sit and listen to that stuff, that rhetoric on a daily basis. And when I took a transcendental meditation class, which was now called Quantum, he sat there and said, you are perfect. Like your brain, even if you are calling yourself an alcoholic, a sober one, right, or that you're in 12-step. And he, and they did a study at UCLA. With, they spent $25 million. Like no AA and NA has never done like a dime of research to prove anything, right? And yet I've been told that we have, I interviewed a guy from Miami, who recently left AA, a young guy, that he had doctors with white coats on in a hospital in Miami in a treatment program that he went to, you know, just he wanted to stop drinking, that were preaching him like faith healing stuff. Like they were not, and I was just shocked in the interview. These are medical doctors. Yeah. I, you know, there's just, it's, it's everything away from like, um, any sense of people making choices, or you know, they have self-agency in life, right? Or and, right. and 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 you know, it's it's a, such a double weird whammy. It's like on the one hand, if you say you're different to somebody, you're giving them, you're telling them they're defective, which isn't good. But right, at the same right. time, you're giving them an excuse, right? Right, right. It's just such a. It's just, don't, I mean, don't you think it's such a? It's such a. Um, destructive uh, message, I think, ultimately. I think it's very destructive, and I, it sort of, that was the beginning. It was sort of, it, when I began to study, and he sort of planted that seed, and then I was studying Buddhism, which believes that at my core, you know, that I'm 
I'm perfect and whole. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, I started to look at things, and then my son started to just drink too much and have a problem, and I, I was thrown into this world and found the orange papers and found the, the website Think and Thinking, and, um, you know, I, my father was dying, you know, of, and he never, never liked AA, and uh, so it, all that kind of stuff happened, and I saw that thing on Frontline. It's very, uh, it's, it's a problem. You cannot tell your youth that they are defective, that they are powerless, that they are unfixable. What? So, you know, some documentary filmmakers that just need funding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, there have been a number who've sort of crawled, sort of come step forward and would like to do something. Um, yeah, but it's not like they can get corporate funding, right? So they're yeah, all sort get, of struggling with funding. Let's get Pfizer to fund it. They have a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think what you should do is. You know, most of the makers of the atypical antipsychotics have had to pay these huge fines for illegal marketing of the drugs. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know what the total of the fines they've paid now, $5 billion, something like that. The, huge, the biggest fines ever in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it's almost like been a criminal enterprise. From the viewpoint of state attorney generals, this is not me speaking. Um, really? Yeah, absolutely. Huge things. And you you wish that maybe they could they would force as part of these <laughs> as as part of these fines use that money to fund documentaries about uh, their own corruption in marketing these drugs. Wow. Um what uh, how when did you start writing? What is your writing on this subject, this book or what do you mean by that? Yeah, no, writing these books. I know that you have um more than one book and um right. Well, I started I, the, um the first book I began writing in uh first of any of my books was in 1999 when I first started or really 2000, early 2000 I got a, a contract to write my first book. So it's been about 10 11 years now. Mhm. Um so you said you've been like Speaking all over, where are some of the places? You said you went to New Zealand and you spoke at a college. Like, say, what are Well, I've been places? all over the United States. Um, yeah. Who are you speaking I've been to? Ca- What's that? Who are you speaking to when you're speaking? Uh, it's different groups. Sometimes it's um, uh, parent groups. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, whatever, patient groups. In other words, people who've been diagnosed. Right. Uh, sometimes it is... Uh, People who provide mental health services. Sometimes it's professional organizations. Sometimes it's psychiatrists. Uh, even grand rounds at medical schools. Mm-hmm. So there's all these sort of different um, groups who are inviting me. Uh, well, Patients, parents, mm-hmm. providers, school counselors, social workers, psychiatrists, psychologists. It, it really runs the gamut. Good. I was talking to Tom, you know, Horvath, and actually someone else who's a like a reality show guy. But it's um, he's not a he wants to make good reality shows. You know, he's done really quality stuff. And I said we really need um, we need a television show. I think where there's a panel where it's sort of the opposite of Dr. Drew. You know, where you could bring on. You know, I feel like I could be Bill Maher. I could be the female Bill Maher. Uh-huh. And Amy Lee Coy, who wrote a book, you know, from Death Doors Part, 
who got clean right. and sober on her own writing her book, you know, after 20 years in and out of treatment and 20 years around, um, that you could have people on, like, that have written books like you and talk about, there's got it. There's, there's all these other approaches and awareness that is not really being discussed in our media. Yeah, what happens, of course, is that uh, media basically generally tells a very narrow story, mm-hmm. and it basically um, relates a story told by um, you know certain elements in society, right? Right. And, um, if there's any group that has a generally has a hard time uh, getting its own voice out there, you know, it's disenfranchised groups, and, and clearly those with a psychiatric diagnosis are part of the disenfranchised. So, mm-hmm. um, it, and, and you know, they they tell a very different story. Um, those who've been treated, whether it be for substance abuse or for um, psychiatric disorders, and you know, we need to know their voice, and we need to, you know, their voices. Seasoned by experience, and you know, also the intimacy of having been quote treated or forcibly treated, and I, as you know, their voice, the stories they tell, the histories they tell, are are often so at odds with the story told by you know mainstream medicine. But but they have a really hard time getting any uh, sort of airtime for their voice, and then when even if they do. So often in the mainstream media, then they bring on, uh, you know, a mainstream voice to counter. Oh well, that's interesting, but these people are crazy, sort of response. But of yeah. course, when the when the mainstream docs are, are are talking and giving their view of things, and often, you know, they're working for the drug companies even as they do that. Um, they don't bring on a person who's been treated to go. Well, you know, this is just nonsense. So, m- media tends to relate you know what the powerful and influential uh want to say and speak and tell and um the disenfranchised if they're heard at all is very it's you know it's not often it's not enough and boy do we need to hear their voice Wow, you, you seem really sane <laughs> you don't seem really crazy <laughs> you know like there's some t- people that you know, they get really extreme, and people get, well, even myself, you know, when I first left, uh, I was really mad, and I still can get mad because I get stories and, you know, emails and phone calls from people all over the country with very terrible things happening. But, you know, you seem pretty sane. I think uh, you'd be really good on a show or being interviewed. <laughs> I think um, the idea, though, I even joked around with my documentary. I said, well, maybe I'll contact, you know, one of these big drunk companies and say, you know, this is a real problem, and... You know, um, people with addiction and who drink too much cause a lot of problems for the police and, the, you know, for the judges. And right. But what about um, in prison? Do they are they giving them drugs in prison now? Psych meds? Oh, uh, this is really interesting. So uh, one of my first jobs out of college many years ago, this is in the late seventies, was working at Attica Prison in in upstate New York. Which really? I, I don't know if you remember, but there was a big riot at Attica in the seventies. Yes, yes, I do remember. Uh huh. Okay, and I was brought into. I came in there right after that. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, people in prison were seen as having committed a crime, <laughs> yeah. and and very few were medicated with psychiatric drugs. Okay, they mm-hmm. they weren't you know they weren't pathologized. There was a few who were pathologized, but by and large, it's just like these people committed a crime, and there could have been many pathways to crime. Um, but that's who they. That's what that happened. Right. 
today they're they're all you know they're pathologized like crazy. So you go into prison now, and you're very likely going to get hit with an antipsychotic or a, you know a diagnosis that brings you an antipsychotic or a mood stabilizer. So prison populations are medicated at very high rates today, and what that so of course there's obviously a social control aspect to that. But for that person, it just adds one more difficulty of ever getting their life back. Because, yeah. it, you know, A, it's really hard to get a job when, quote, you've been a felon, right? When you, when you right. have that on you. Well, imagine being a mentally ill felon. In other words, you come out and you're on a medication and you've got a diagnosis in your background and, if, and the sense that you're a felon. You have almost no chance of getting a job, right? Right. So, um, it's just, again, it's part of this, um, yeah, it's behavioral control and excluding ever greater po- part of our population from, uh, you know, really getting a chance to become sort of, you know, enjoy the fruits of this society. And, and, and you know, you know this, of course, if you look at who's in prison, Half the, many of those people in prison are there for selling drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And why, why did they sell drugs? Well, they sold drugs because, at least for a long time, that was one of the economic opportunities that was out there, right, for certain right, people, right. certain situations. I mean, when I was in Attica, supposedly the toughest prison in New York State at the time, so many of the people were just younger people who, you know, started selling drugs. Mm-hmm. You can certainly see why, and then sometimes that came with complications such as violence and all. But but it was it was perfectly understandable why they ended up going down that path. Um, how does somebody? You know, it's been interesting the process of hearing. There's many bloggers who were told to not take medication. You know, and then they felt like they needed medication. Medication is helping a certain group of people that needed it, right? Right. But if somebody's been on it. Like you know, like years, and their life is really good, and they're happy, and now that you know they're they're happily married, and they have a good career, and they want to get off a really low dose. What is the best way, uh, you know, to do that? Well, I don't know, um, because um, the longer you're on, it seems like the harder it can be to get off. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, your brain has been modified by it, and so it's adjusted to it. What what and I but I have spoken to so there's no like protocols really out there I think yeah certain science medicine hasn't researched it hmm. where you find the wisdom on this is from patients themselves who've done it and yeah. they sort of share experiences and all and and have come up with some ideas about how to do it right um and as far as if I could summarize it it would sort of be like this it can be very individualistic. Some people can do it fairly rapidly and without all that much trouble, and others takes a long time and with a lot of you know withdrawal symptoms mm-hmm. and difficult times. Um, it does seem to really help if you have someone who can be by your side, so to speak, and and help you monitor yourself and support you. And if you are having a, a flare-up of symptoms that can that you know could very well be withdrawal symptoms that right. That person can maybe help counsel you through that, you know, give you support to get through that difficult period. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, it's difficult. I don't think it's done particularly. I, mean, I think it's much more difficult to do it in an isolated fashion. Right. Um, I think you can learn from others. 
generally I think it needs to be done slowly, and that's usually the common wisdom, but I'm not 100% sure if that's really true. Um, uh, it would be good to see if you could do it, you know, like with heroin withdrawal, right? Mm-hmm. One of the thoughts is you just go through it, right? You go and you just kick it. And mm-hmm. there's a horrible time, but then you're hopefully out the other side. If we were willing to tolerate a horrible time with people going off abruptly and have some place to help people keep safe, I, this goes against what everybody says. Everybody says slow, slow, slow. And it is true, I think, that slow can, you know, may diminish the uh, chances of like a real severe relapse or a real flare-up of symptoms. Right. But it makes the process so long and so mm. draining. I just don't know if we know much about if we try to do it more quickly with support and keeping people safe. But so you I, think I don't that know. these doctors, even a psychiatrist, is giving advice, but there's no study that's been done. Is that correct? Is that what you're saying? That no one's doing a study well, on Well, no one has really ever looked about how do we get people off successfully, right? Well, the only studies that, that have been done is where you take people who are doing pretty well on the drugs and half of them you yank abruptly and ha- half of them you keep on the drugs. And sure enough, when you yank those people abruptly off, they do have a flare-up of symptoms. That's true. Mm-hmm. Much greater rate than those who aren't, you know, are maintained on the drugs. Well... And what happens is that when those symptoms come, it's saying, aha, see, what they say is, oh, this means the disease is returning, you've got to put people back on the drugs. But if you look at it as a, as a withdrawal process, and, and you could say, well, okay, they're going to get a flare-up of symptoms, but can we help them through that? Can they get outside, get through into the other side of the tunnel, as which you may happen, say, with heroin withdrawal? Well, well, there's nothing that's been looked at that. There's nothing that's been looked at if you yank someone off fairly abruptly off a psych drug and then keep them safe and say it's okay to have a you know flare up of symptoms and can then we get people to the other side of that you know dark tunnel no one's mm-hmm. ever looked at that so I, listen this is part of the betrayal they put people on they put kids in on and they have no clue uh, or protocols for getting people off how long how fast when nothing like that Boy, it's like never. a one-way gate. You know what I mean? It's, so there's a one, yeah, there's a door really like into a being a medicated patient, but there's no door out. Right. No medical it's, door out. Uh-uh. It's not. It's not good. Like I almost feel like there's this, you know, and it's not just with this. It feels like even politically, we have this throwback. You know, I have a mother who, you know, is in her 70s, and I'm in my early 50s. Like it's like, wait a second. Like I have a you know a seventeen year old who you know informs me that the Patriot Act is really like against the Constitution and although we have some different freedoms you know especially for people of color there's some things that have like really going wrong and gone wrong and there's not even a place for it like what you're talking about what a great idea if if you could have a a magic wand which I know one doesn't exist but um and you could change something what would it be? In this field of care? Yeah, or anything. There like all these great books you've written and all the stuff that you know, you go around talking to people. Obviously you have a passion, right? Just about I have about what I'm working on. Right. Well if I you had a magic wand. Yeah, if you had a magic wand and because I have things that I would change and I have a whole list of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> what I would do with well, I have a whole list right? too. But uh just with the magic wand on this issue, I would have us all wake up tomorrow with a very different conception of 
of human beings, um, and the conception would be that um, it would have a very broad understanding of human beings. By that I mean it's 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 you know people people do get anxious, people do get depressed, people can go manic, people can go have psychotic symptoms, etc. In other words, there's this myriad of, of possibilities within the realm of human experience, um, and it pro- and it, and when that happens, it doesn't mean necessarily that someone is defective or ill with the disease, but we should just. See, this is, you know, there's this range of emotional, mental places people can be at. And then once we have that sort of bigger vision of what it means to be human, that it's not this steady state existence, then the question becomes how do you help people who want help and, mm-hmm. um, and how, you know, gain control of their behavior, suffer less and that sort of thing. And then the magic wand would be, would be you know care that involves helping people out of isolation, maybe helping people deal in a non-drug way with having been traumatized. Um, mm-hmm. That would deliver a sense of hope. Would try to help people see, uh, you know, would help people form friendships, strengthen friendships. It would help them find meaning in life, hopefully through work or mm-hmm. pursuits. Um, it would help them lead, you know, physic, you know, more physically healthy lives, eat better, that sort of thing, exercise right, more. Right. So it would be a two-pronged thing that says, stops pathologizing people, says, you know, to be human is to have the capacity to suffer, you know, many, 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 many mental states and emotional states that can be so, so difficult. And then it would be a therapeutic approach that um wouldn't put its faith in a magic bullet or but would say listen we are social creatures and who need to find meaning in life and and, and uh so it would be therapies that help people do that build social bonds live healthily and uh find meaning right right i have some people in the chat room there's just a few in there today cuz i um Eight one eight four seven five ninety two eleven. We have like five and a half minutes left of the show. Okay, I don't know great. if anybody out is out there listening that wants to call in and maybe ask uh, one question, or you can ch- if you want to type it. I can also ask. Uh, I have Robert uh, Whitaker on the line here, and we are talking about anatomy of an epidemic, and um, we are. If anybody would like to call in, uh, again, it's eight one eight. Four seven five ninety two eleven. Um, yeah, somebody is typing. Let's see. What about the people who take these drugs and drink alcohol? Someone asks. Uh, somebody in the chat room. So people what who drink again and are on I'm sorry, Monica. So uh, someone's asking. Um, they just typed the question. Um, what about people who take the psych drugs and drink alcohol? What, is, what does know, that do to the brain? <laughs> I know what it does. It's not good, but <laughs> you know, I, I don't really know this um, in terms of these sort of interactions between alcohol and the drugs. I, I just don't yeah. know. Um, oh, okay. Here's the only thing I would. Say. Well, I'm not going to say on this. I, I don't know. I, I think that's a very complicated story. Okay. Um, where else are you going to be speaking? Uh, what's your next? Um... Um, let's see. I'm in Canada next week, and then I'm. Boy, I just bounce all over the place. I'm uh, different places in the United States. Then I'm going to be in oh, 
the UK, Sweden, Scotland. Uh, for well, that's a lot. So is it a book tour that you're doing right no, now? No, it's this and the book's been out for like fifteen, eighteen months. It's it's groups inviting me to speak mm-hmm. who just want to have discussions about this. And it's some of the forums are public, some of the forums are just private. Um, if people want to try to figure out, I, I um, keep a list on MaddenAmerica.com. You can go to MaddenAmerica.com and. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's several people that actually blog there, but I blog there, and you can go to my page, and there's my speaking schedule, and I list the um, the public talks that people can go to. I don't list the private ones, but the public ones are listed there. Did anybody ever from Frontline contact you to do, you know, a piece about this? You know, your book and you, and then you could sure go off from there. Um, there have been documentary filmmakers who've done work for Frontline who have contacted me and then went back to Frontline hoping to do a story, but um, they haven't been able to get funding. Mm, even with the kid aspect, because I know that this was so disturbing. Um, uh, I think it, it was disturbing. Um, I think there's a sense that um, even for Frontline, it's a bit much to challenge uh, the common wisdom that this is all okay. Yeah, so it has to be done by an independent, I think, you know, people who... Oh, we have somebody here. There's a caller on the line. Um okay. It's a really short time. Would you like to take a call? Let's sure. A, let's do it. Hi, caller. You're on the line. Uh, Monica, did you want me to speak? It's Stanton. Oh, hi, Stanton. Well, I had, um, I, you know, I had... Uh, Robert came on, but do you have a question for Robert? Oh, no. I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> I, I thought you, I just got a message. Uh, hi, Robert. Good to hear from hi, you. Hi, how are you? Nice to talk to you. What were you talking about, Monica? <laughs> oh, well, we're t- we're talking about um, his book and about just sort of the um, the drugging of America with the psych drugs and, you know, the epidemic level. What's Robert's thing. book's called? Um, is Anatomy of an Epidemic, which is one that came out about a year and a half ago, and then Mad in America. So, um, what's you know, the epidemic? I, yeah, it's like you know, just it's looking at the rising number of 30. people on disability due to mental illness. And, and what do you attribute that to? The rising number, which has tripled in the last yes, um, it's a combination what? of factors, um, but it's in a large part due to this paradigm of psychiatric care that we have that has widened psychiatric boundaries, diagnostic boundaries, and for some people, when they go on the medications, they have uh, bad outcomes long-term on those drugs. Well, you saw the article by Maria Angel, did you, in the New York Review of Books? And uh, uh, Mine was one of the books she reviewed. Oh, yours, uh, you wrote the book, uh, what's your name? My name's Whitaker, Robert Whitaker, so Marsha Angel Robert was, was reviewing three books, and one of them was mine. No, I'm well aware of yours, and I also remember that you did a very thorough, uh, it was very funny that that, uh, Kramer wrote in claiming that you misstated the uh, nature of the uh, evidentiary basis or lack of it for antidepressants' effectiveness, and you then wrote a comeback to that, didn't you, in a Psychology Today blog? Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, he had his data all wrong, so (laughs) I did. I mean, he made it up whole cloth. Yeah, and Monica, what do you think about antidepressants? Well, I think over Monica? the short term... Are you asking me Let or me Monica? Let me ask Monica. Okay. Monica, what do you think about antidepressants? 
I think they're way over uh, overused, and um, I think that they they've helped um, from you know people from killing themselves. But I do think that that's the reason I asked um, Bob to be on was I had heard him on Ken Anderson, and I, I just loved what he was saying. And you know, my show is I, I guess it's uh, still going to go. So maybe we can, are you still on, everybody? I'm on. So I you should there, say Bob? goodbye. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Monica. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the time is up. I'm so uh, it was wonderful. Maybe great we'll have you uh, on again. Robert Whitaker, uh, great work you're doing. Fabulous. I'm oh, so, well, thanks uh, very much. And, uh, to I really appreciate the chance to speak with you. Thank you right. so much. I'll talk you again, and I'll talk to you, Stanton. Thanks for calling in. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, everybody. So it's another episode of. Safe Recovery on Blog Talk Radio. Um, remember, empowerment, not powerless, is our slogan. And what a great thank you, Stanton Peel, for calling in. Um, and Addiction Proof Your Child is one of my favorites that Stanton wrote. And I know uh, in Mad in America and Anatomy of an Epidemic was written by Robert Whitaker. He speaks uh, all over the country and the world. Uh, and I like this line here. It says, could psychiatric drugs be fueling a mental illness epidemic? That's the question. We'll see you all next time. Okay, bye.